0: The theme verse for this whole series comes from 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, and it's going to be on screen, and I'd like for you to read it with me. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clean conscience, and genuine faith. Conscience can be defined as an inner feeling that acts as a guide. To the rightness or the wrongness of our behavior. For us, uh, those of us with a biblical worldview, our conscience is that part of our soul that is most like God. The human conscience was awakened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before that, they had known only good. But when we choose evil, our conscience is violated. And there's an emotional discomfort that begins to take over. Why? Because when we're at odds with our created purpose, we get a feeling that is deeply disturbing. It's called guilt. It's called shame. And as we'll see in a few moments, our first instinct is to hide from God and from ourselves and from other people. Feelings of shame and hiding, as well as the act of blaming others for our problems, did not start with this generation. It began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When the forbidden fruit was eaten, the consciences of Adam and Eve were awakened and sin entered their lives and the lives of every human since. The story is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. It's the story of paradise lost and God's judgment, both on the serpent, and on all of humanity. It was after Eve ate the fruit of the tree that was forbidden, and Adam followed her lead, That Genesis 3, 7 through 9 says, at that moment their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now notice that God went looking for Adam and Eve, just as he looks for us today. And even though we have stuff in our lives that makes us feel guilt and shame through God's grace and through the shed blood of his son, God offers us a way to clear our conscience and give us joy. It was Shakespeare in his play Hamlet who said that conscience makes us cowards. It makes cowards of us all. And isn't that true? Our conscience doesn't care what our background is. It doesn't care what religion we were brought up in. It doesn't care what traditions we observe. I can tell you that we all have at times violated our conscience, which at least in most people makes us feel a little guilty because we have violated what we know to be the right thing. Now, the word conscience comes from two words, con, which means with, and science, which means knowledge. So it's knowledge that we carry around with us. And today we're going to look at the origin of conscience and its implications, but there are a couple other things that you should know about conscience. One is that it's universal. Everyone is created with a conscience. In Romans chapter 2, The Apostle Paul says that the pagans who do not have the written law of God are going to be judged by their conscience, which is is either going to accuse them or excuse them because the conscience is the rudimentary law of God written on every human heart. Secondly, our conscience can also be conditioned. The Apostle Paul talks about some Christians who have a conscience that tells them that they can't do something, And he says that other Christians may have a conscience that tells them they can. And the lesson here is that conditioning is part of our conscience. Let me give you an example. I was brought up in a pretty legalistic Christian home where we were not allowed, among other things, to go to movies. Theaters were places where, in my parents' world, decent people just didn't go. I'll never forget the time that I was... The first time I was in a theater, I was in college. I was 400 miles away from home with a couple of friends and we went to see Deliverance of all films. (laughs) I remember making my friend, this is back in the early 70s, I remember making my friends promise not to tell anyone so that it wouldn't get back to my parents. You see, because of the way my conscience had been conditioned I expected the theater to kind of collapse on me. I expected a lightning bolt when I walked out. I expected the judgment of God. The judgment didn't come, and since that time, Jan and I do go to see movies occasionally, but it took me a long time to shake that legalistic upbringing. Third, I also need to remind us that our conscience has tremendous power. It can destroy us. It can haunt us. It can be there day and night. The problem is that our conscience doesn't always trouble us before we do something. Sometimes it remains silent, and after we've done something, then it's there haunting us and reminding us. I've known people who have become mentally and emotionally unstable because of some unconfessed sin in their life. I remember reading about a doctor who said, I could dismiss half of my patients if I could just look them in the eye and give them the assurance that they are forgiven by God. You see, there's tremendous power in the grace of God and having a clear conscience. There was a man who was a wonderful Christian. He had a lovely wife, great children. He was asked every year to be a leader in his local church, and always he said no. People said, why? You're gifted. You know the Bible. You're a great guy. And the truth that he confessed later to his pastor one day was that when he was in college, he had had an affair with a young woman, and there was a little boy growing up somewhere in another city who was his. His wife didn't know, his children didn't know, and he had been haunted for a long time by the fact of what he had done in his past. He was stuck at that point from making progress in his spiritual life. And sometimes I wonder what it would be like if we all had a clear conscience. If we were without offense before God and before other people, can you imagine what Redeemer Church would be like if that were true? Can you imagine what this community would be like if that were true? If we could look everyone in the eye knowing that we have done all that we can possibly do to make things right in every area of our life? In future weeks, we're going to be talking about how to deal with guilt and how to cope with impossible people and how to help people who harden their conscience because some of these people we live with. Some of you here today are married to impossible people. How do you live with an impossible person who does evil things without a twinge of guilt? You see, the goal of a clear conscience is going to be joy and gladness, In the book of Acts, it says that the early church had joy and gladness because of their freedom in Christ. But we cannot have joy unless our conscience is free, and we can't believe God for the things that we need to believe him for unless our conscience is free. The Bible says in 1 John 3.21, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence. We can come to God with bold confidence if, We don't feel guilty. So if you're here today with a conscience that's not clear, and if you're struggling with shame or guilt, I'm going to invite you to come out of the shadows and move with confidence toward God. You know, we want Redeemer Church to be a safe place. That's why we have various small groups and classes and opportunities where you can share your need, where you can share your heart, where you can even share your past and know that you'll not be shamed for it. We all need to be helped because the truth is, as someone has said, we are all either in denial or we're all in recovery. All of us have issues with our conscience. So let's go back to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Here are two people who have a perfect environment. Can you imagine Adam and Eve have all the beauty that they could ever want. They have all the food they want. They have fellowship with God every day who comes walking with them in the the garden and Eve has no insecurities. She didn't have to compete with a supermodel on television or a cover of Glamour. She didn't have to lie awake at night wondering whether or not she'd really married the right guy. She didn't have any of those problems and yet for all of that she and her husband decide to disobey God. In chapter 3, the serpent comes to them and he gets them to doubt God's word. And they have this dialogue. And I assume that you know something of the story, Genesis 3, 4, and 5. You won't die, the serpent replies to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, that is, the forbidden fruit. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The implication is that they're going to know good and evil and they're going to make their own decisions as to what's good and what's evil, because now they're going to be like God. They're going to take the place of God. So what the serpent is saying to Eve is, Eve, feel, don't think. Don't you see that fruit is beautiful? Sin has a way of always coming at us looking pretty good, doesn't it? And so what Eve did was that she ate the tree and her husband was standing there in the garden with her and he just watched her do it. Now I've often thought that the first sin might not have been Eve actually eating the fruit of the tree. It might have been Adam just standing by and not saying anything, just watching Eve do it and then participating with her in this act of disobedience. Well, you know the rest of the story. Suddenly they experienced what we would call the unexpected, the unplanned, the un- intended consequences of their behavior and their circumstances. And after what happened, we know that they could not have predicted what those circumstances would be. When God said you must not eat it or even touch it, if you do, you will die, they had no experience of death up till now. So they reasoned to themselves, we can handle the consequences. It won't be that bad. And furthermore, if we don't eat the fruit of the tree, we're always going to wonder what it was like if we, and if we should have, and we can't live with that curiosity, so we're going to go ahead and eat of the fruit of the tree. They did not know that they were beginning a domino effect. They could not have predicted that someday they would have a son by the name of Cain who would kill his brother Abel, and all of this evil would now go into the human race. All of the evil would flow throughout history. They had no way to foresee that. And even today, you and I have no idea. We cannot predict all of the consequences of our disobedience. Sometimes those consequences are like the proverbial beach ball in the swimming pool. You know, you push it down over here and you think, at last, I'm rid of it. And then you let go and it pops up somewhere else. And you still have to deal with it. Sin is like that, because the consequences of sin may be unintended, but they are often ongoing. So let's look exactly at what happens in this context. Well, actually, shame begins. Genesis 2 ends with the last part of verse 25, and it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. That's the end of chapter 2. Over into chapter 3, verse 8, after this connection with the serpent it says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. A very good question. How did they know that they were naked? God says, did I tell you you were naked? Was there a little bird in the tree that shouted, hey, guess what? You're naked. Who told you that? It was their conscience. That's where it all began. And now suddenly shame is going to be huge in terms of the consequences of sin. That's why next week we're going to be talking about how do we acknowledge that shame is not always our fault because some of us were brought up in a shame-based environment and shame was put upon us. But others of us know about shame, the shame of affairs, the shame of alcoholism, the shame of addictions, the shame of brokenness, the shame of lying. And it's a shame we carry around with us. Shame is huge. And shame leads to hiding. And this is where the compartmentalizing of life begins. It's called living in the shadows. You see, in compartment a he's, a, he's a Sunday school teacher. He's well thought of. He's respected in the community. In compartment B, at home, he's an abuser. He's an alcoholic. See, all of us have a private life. We wouldn't want other people to know all the thoughts that we had just even this past week, would we? Adam and Eve's disobedience has affected all of us. And so what happens is that we put things in compartments in our lives and we hide what we want to hide and then we look for somebody else to blame. God said to Adam, Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And Adam's response was to find somebody to blame. He said, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. In other words, it's your fault, God. What's a guy supposed to do? He's got to eat. I mean, my wife was eating. If you'd given me a better wife, this wouldn't have happened. She's to blame. So Adam blames God, and then he blames his wife, even though there wasn't a chance in the world that he had married the wrong person. And then, of course, God comes to the woman and says, what have you done? And she says, well, the serpent deceived me. First the man blames God, and then his wife blames the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. It was bad, I know. (laughs) Couldn't resist. But the point is, the whole history of the human race was being written. In these moments, the whole history of the human race was being written. It's not a lot different with us, is it? As soon as our sin is exposed, what do we do? We say it's his fault. It's her fault. It's the kid's fault. It's my employer's fault. It's never our fault. And we are going to defend ourselves right to the end. Albert Camus, the secular philosopher, said each of us insists on being innocent at all costs, even if we have to accuse the whole human race and heaven itself we defend ourselves we dig in our heels if we need to lie we'll lie if we need, can't lie we'll bend the truth but we've got to blame something or someone because we have to hide ourselves from God and from other people and even from ourselves the problem is that the conscience doesn't forget look at what happens next God takes the initiative Adam and Eve probably thought well I know what we'll do we'll eat of the fruit of the tree and if it doesn't work out very well if it turns out bad, we can just stop eating of that fruit and that tree and we'll go back to the other trees in the garden. You see, they thought they knew how to handle their consequences. And one of the things that God did in verse 24 is he surprises them. He drives this not so happy couple completely out of the garden. They have lost Paradise. And he puts at the east end of the garden a cherubim with a flaming sword so that they can never ever go back to Eden. If they ate of the fruit of the tree of life again, they would have lived forever in their earthly bodies. So God says, you can't go back to Eden. And you know what? Neither can we go back to innocence. We can't get our virginity back. We can't get our reputation back in a lot of circumstances. We can't redo our parenting so that our kids turn out better the next time. The past is the past. And Eden teaches us that for a lot of things in life, we can't go back. Now the question is, what's the answer to all of this? God says, I come looking for you. Check this out. Adam and Eve weren't in the garden saying, oh, I wonder where we can find God. Let's run around and see if we can find him. No, God comes looking for them. And the Bible says that there is no one who seeks after God. And we say, well, I sought after God and, and, he, and I found him. Yes, you did, but only because God took the initiative. Only because God started the search and he found you and me where we are. God always comes looking for us. I have not chosen, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, said Jesus. And so what we find is that God comes looking for Adam and Eve, and here was their condition, verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. What Satan said was partially true. They now experienced evil, and their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they began to sew fig leaves together. And they made themselves some loincloths, and ever since that time, we have been looking for fig leaves to cover up our sin and our shame and our guilt. And you may say, what are you talking about, Rod? I'm not looking for any fig leaves. I'm not sure I would even know a fig leaf if I saw one. Really? Have you ever tried to cover up your inadequacy? Have you ever tried to cover up your sadness with a few pills or a drink or two or three? Have you ever tried to cover up an inappropriate relationship with lies We're all looking for fig leaves to cover our sin and our guilt and our shame. And so the whole process of human nature goes on and then because the fig leaves really can't cover our deepest problems and the emptiness that we feel inside, we don't know where to turn. And so we turn to alcoholism and we turn to drugs and we turn, some people turn to suicide because all of the fig leaves don't work. And so for some folks that's the human answer to shame and nakedness but God provides an answer. Notice in verse 21, the Lord God made clothing of animal skins for Adam and his wife. And so where did God get the garments of skin, you may ask? Well, obviously God had to sacrifice the lives of some of the animals that he created. What's God saying here? God is saying that there's no cheap covering for sin. You can't cover your own sin, no matter how well it's hidden only God can do that and he does it through the sacrifice and ultimately of his own son Jesus Christ who shed his blood as a ransom for our sin that's going to be God's answer to all of our sin and it's not cheap it cost God the death of his son the whole drama of the cross but what that means now is that our sin can be covered because sometimes in our lives we mess up and we can't clean up the mess the consequences are going to be there. God is now going to work more deeply in the human heart so that it's not just that we're legally forgiven, but God is going to clear up our conscience. He's going to clean us up. He's going to purge everything out of our conscience. And the Bible says that we're not only forgiven, but we can look God in the face and we can look in the face of everyone else with joy and with openness and freedom because our conscience has been made clear. So what God says here is that eventually self-accusations will stop and we'll be able to sleep at night. And yes, there may be reconciliations, things that we need to deal with, but God is going to lead us so that we're actually at peace with him and at peace with other people. Now, when Adam and Eve received God's covering, did that mean that everything else went really well for them in the future? No. I can imagine that Adam and Eve had a huge argument that evening. They may be still arguing for all we know. But here's the good news. Because of the covering of God, it meant that Adam and Eve could have fellowship with God again. They were not in the garden. They weren't in paradise, but they could have fellowship with God again. But all of the human issues that relate to conscience were still boiling in their home. And eventually they raised a boy named Cain who broke their heart by the evil in his heart. And I wonder sometimes if they began to blame each other all over again. Adam, look at what your son did today. Eve, you're the one who bore him. You spent more time raising him than I did. Cain kills Abel. And the whole history of the human race begins to fall apart as evil has its way. And you and I are caught in this huge vortex of evil. We are born with a sin nature. We came into the world under condemnation. We struggle with conscience issues. We struggle with integrity. But the good news is that Jesus came to rectify the mess and to give us hope. And the big issue today is not the greatness of our sin. We can be here today and worship and have committed the biggest sin imaginable, but grace is offered to us and to all in this fallen human race. In Psalm 32, the first two verses, this psalm was written by King David who committed murder. He committed adultery, couldn't clean up his mess. But in the end, God restores the joy of his salvation by offering him grace and by dealing with his conscience and his words are, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty." Despite his terrible sin, the consequences, David ended his life with a clean conscience. And you and I can do that as well. You know, Jesus went into the upper room and he said to the disciples the night before his death, he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. And this is the cup that I give to you, symbolizing my blood, which is going to be shed for sinners. I'm going to cover your sin. I'm going to forgive you so that you can have a clear conscience and you can rejoice regardless of your past. And so today, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're here this morning or listening to this podcast, you can receive Jesus into your life right now. The teaching of Scripture is that there is nothing that the serpent could do to keep God from rescuing humanity and showing us his grace. And God is offering that grace to each of us today. God wants to cover our shame and our guilt and he wants to set us free, and he wants us to have a clear conscience, and that can be ours. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you might use your word today to bring about transformation and hope to all who hear, and I pray for those who have never received Christ as Savior, that you would draw them in. May your grace be Just draw them as they realize that despite their past, you can cover their sin, and they can know you. Thank you for the freedom that we can now know in Christ, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.